Welcome to the Center in the City podcast. I'm your host, Wade Brill, and during this series, I'll be interviewing various thought leaders, wellness experts, and humans on how they practice sustainable self-care and mindfulness. We'll get real and raw, talk about the light and the shadow side of self-care and mindfulness, and how we can actually stay centered amid the chaos and the hustle and bustle of our modern day world. So settle in and get centered. This podcast episode is brought to you by Centered in the City, a virtual on-demand self-care and mindfulness platform with over 200 different meditations, journaling prompts, nourishing recipes, and Pilates flows, all designed to support you feeling calm, focused, and energized as you live your life in this modern day world. For more information, head on over to centeredinthecity.org and claim your seven-day free trial. Welcome back to the Centered in the City podcast. Today, I am interviewing a friend and a fellow mindfulness teacher, Janine Johnston, who is known for working with adults, teens, and children and empowering them to have a compassionate connection to self. Janine runs her own company called ARC, which stands for Awareness, Resiliency, Clarity, and Compassion. I knew Janine would be the perfect person to have on the podcast to talk about how we get to bring compassion to ourselves and each other. We know that this is such an important topic and practice and solution to this epidemic that we are faced here in the United States of loneliness. There is research out there of how much loneliness and isolation people are feeling and the impacts of this increase by 29% heart disease, 32% increased risk of stroke, 50% increase in developing dementia for older adults, and 60% premature deaths, right, when we have lack of connection. So loneliness is a really devastating killer in our culture, and compassion can be an antidote to how we help heal that within ourselves and with each other. So settle into today's podcast get cozy or grab your walking shoes, and let's get ready to get centered. Janine, welcome to the Center and City podcast. Thank you, Wade. It is so nice to be here. Will you share with us one of your favorite go-to practices right now in the season of your life that supports you staying centered, whatever that means to you? Sure. As you know, I teach mindful self-compassion. And when I first took the course, we were taught the mind, the self-compassion break, and I really didn't have any use for it. But as I teach it again and again, and then I'm taking, I'm taking a course on mindful self-compassion myself for shame. And as I am realizing where shame comes up for me in my life, I've, I've begun using the self-compassion break for shame on a regular basis, and I find it really powerful. So how that goes is you're having a bad moment, whatever goes on, you get frustrated, you get angry, you feel upset somehow, you just notice that you're having a moment of suffering. So the script goes, ah, this is a moment of suffering. But 
that doesn't always feel really natural. Like I have some friends that we text each other every day about our practice. And somebody just today was like, it just doesn't feel right. Sometimes when I feel upset that I didn't get what I wanted in a situation to say, I am suffering. It sounds really selfish to me. So whatever we say there just has to fit the situation. Like, oh, I just got a paper cut. Ouch. You know, maybe that's all that it is. But we Some say sense of acknowledgement. It's mindfulness that I'm suffering a little bit or a lot, whatever it is. Yeah. Acknowledgement of this moment. And then we tell ourselves other people like me who went are going through this would also feel out of sorts, frustrated, whatever that emotion is at this time. And that helps us overcome this notion that we're alone in our suffering. This is something that humans tend to do, that we um, make up this story that we're all alone in this situation, that nobody else is suffering the way we are. So yeah, other people like me would feel the same way I do at this moment. And the last step is, and what do I need to hear right now? Like, let's say it's the paper cut. Ouch. Yeah, that does hurt. It's amazing how something so little can really hurt. but. It could be any number of things um, when it comes to shame. It's the yeah, I'm I, I'm not alone. Actually, I do belong in this group is shame is this internal notion of us not belonging. So just whatever kind words we need to hear to address what's what's hurting at the moment. Okay, you just dropped so much wisdom <laughs> and I love the self compassion break. It's something I've integrated into some corporate work because it can just be this 30 second, one minute practice that we can go through. And so that sense of, okay, step one is acknowledging, acknowledging that there's suffering here. Step two, that idea of not alone, that there are other people that have been in my situation. There are other people that have been rejected from a job. There are other people that um, have had somebody ghost them on social media or a dating, texting world, you know, that, that we are not alone. And why is that important to know that we're not alone? Yeah, well, um, research is showing that as human beings, we are very social beings, whether we want to realize it or not, we, we really need to feel that we're a part of a group. Um, it's thought that as prey animals in the grander scheme of evolution, we really needed to be a part of the group to be safe since we don't have other kinds of defenses. And so we've developed this very strong system of, of wanting to be a part of the group and then using not being a part of the group to sort of control one another. And so when we realize, oh, I'm actually, I really don't need to feel like I don't belong here. I do belong all people suffer. There's something really liberating about knowing that we're still a part of humanity and actually even a greater part of humanity because we suffer and so does everybody. Yeah. And so not making it like, oh, I'm suffering. I'm the only, per like this victim mentality. I'm the only person that's suffering in the world. Woe is me. Wow. I must be really fucking up life here because I'm like, I'm feeling this much pain and that can kind of spiral us down into more isolation, more shame, more um, negative thought patterns that aren't true, right? Yeah. When, when we really can look at it um, from a zoomed out lens. Yes. And, and as you say that, I just reflect on the fact that I think social media and many other forces in our lives would have us believe that we're 
we're not supposed to suffer. We're supposed to be happy all the time. You know, if we get onto whatever platform of social media and we look at what most people are posting, it's about how things are going great. And so we can kind of buy into this myth that nobody is suffering out there. Um, but the truth is every single person is, and, and that, uh, you know, liberates us to, to feel a part of grand scheme, this grand community, you know, yeah, this grand game of life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I was just on a silent retreat this last week and Twery Sala, one of my meditation teachers talked about how suffering is good. Like, can we look at suffering? Like suffering is a teacher. Suffering isn't something we have to judge as bad, even though it might be unpleasant or painful, but that it actually gives us a lot of insight when we can meet it with care. Mm -hmm. And so this third part of the self-compassion break of offering ourselves some, some care, some words of compassion, some words of kindness, and sometimes I can find the like words that are offered, whether it's in a meditation or you're reading in an article can feel like corny or like, oh, that feels so fake or inauthentic, kind of as your friend was texting you, like even just saying like, you know, it feels selfish to say like, oh, I'm suffering. So I think that emphasis on like finding words that feel really authentic, that feel meaningful. And I had another teacher on this retreat uh, Shelly Graff talk about, they said in our small groups, you know, when people were sharing, they were like, oh, sweet thing. Like the way they said, mm -hmm. oh, sweet thing was in like the most gentle, loving tone. And it didn't feel corny. It felt so true and heart opening that I was like, ah, oh, like, Shelly, your voice and your tonation of that is now forever in my mind and heart, or I, I hope, well, nothing's forever, I hope, but I hope that, you know, I get to keep that alive because it was so gentle and caring and nurturing. What are some of your favorite self-compassion phrases to offer yourself in those moments? Thank you for that. Um, speaking of games, I like to make a game of seeking out the exact phrase that I need in any one moment and then practicing listening to myself as I say it and practicing saying it in the most wise and kind tone I possibly can. So last night I actually went on a hike on my favorite trail. It was sunset. I was coming down the mountain and I took this new trail I've never taken before just for the adventure of it and because I knew I would find my way. And I was going down and thinking of some things in my life. And, and then there was this one voice that was like, oh my God, I can't believe you did that. And then I observed and I said, oh, Janine, it's really not that. You, you weren't really trying to sell yourself down the river. You were actually coming at this from a really good place. Um, so that was in that moment what I needed. But I often need to hear that I belong. That's one of mine that I really, having grown up as a single child, divorced family, um, with lots of my extended family pretty far away, um, I learned this in the last few years that that one really helps me uh, tap into my wisest self and and kind of come to life with a more wise uh, engagement. Some of the others that I like to use. 
Well, I, I just use the basics and they are so deep too. On a regular basis, I direct them to my two daughters and to myself and then a few other people who pop to mind every day. And they are, may I be happy? It's nice, but I know I'm not going to. I have the may I, right? It's not always that, but may I? And may I be the one that I'm using now is safe. Sometimes it's in harmony, but safe is pretty deep. There's a lot in there. May I be healthy in mind and body? Wow, what is the responsibility I have in that today? And how can I bring that forward? And then with my daughters, that, that's really deep too. Like, how can I help them foster health in mind and body? And the last is, may I live at ease? And then I track that daily, like at what moments am I living in ease? And when am I not living in ease? What's going on in those moments? So those are a few of the ones that are big in my my life right now. But as I say, they evolve. Mm -hmm. And staying curious to notice which ones are supporting you or what does your system need to hear in those moments or would feel nourishing to hear. And I love that you're emphasizing you know, the importance of the may I statements to just offer that intention out there, not that sense of like, I need to be happy, give me happiness right now. But like, may I open my heart to happiness? Like, may I feel safe and at ease? I say that one to myself a lot. That's a really powerful one for me. So if we zoom out right now and think about like our world, like self-compassion and this practice is always helpful, no matter what's going on in our life. I don't even think we need to be experiencing intense suffering to for it to be a beautiful practice. But if we zoom out and think about like what's happening in our world right now, a lot of layoffs, a lot of economic uncertainty, mental health crisis, crises, gun control, racism, environmental degradation, degradation, right? There's there's so much that's happening in this point of time. And I'm curious, how do we get to use our self-compassion practice like off of the cushion, so to speak? Thank you. I feel like I need to, to give a shout out here for just a moment. These, um, Kristen Neff is one of the founders of the Mindful Self-Compassion um, program evolution of different programs she's a researcher at the University of Texas um, an assistant professor of education and she has found in her research which was primarily um, well began in the self-esteem um, research that the reason that we need that may I is that um, affirmations this notion that um, I am wonderful, I am so intelligent, whatever that might be, that they, if we're feeling great about ourselves, they can be really helpful. But if we're not at any one moment, then it actually makes us feel worse in a way. So that it's helpful for us to put that may I, as you were saying on the beginning there, in order to offer um, the freedom for for that wish. When it, when it If we're not right now, it, it will happen at another time. Now, with how to bring these practices to daily life, this week I read an opinion written in the New York Times by the Surgeon General. 
The title of his letter was, We Have Become a Lonely Nation, It's Time to Fix That. And this was published on uh, April 30th in the New York Times again. And of course, the Surgeon General is a, is a successful man. He's, this is his second round as the Surgeon General, but he decided that he would write this very open self facing letter about his own loneliness and other people's loneliness because he fought, he believes that it's one of the biggest threats to our nation. It impacts our physical health in a number of different ways from heart to blood pressure to a number of other factors. Um, and it impacts, of course, mental health in terms of depression and also anxiety. But it also increases this notion um, that we are alone. And what that does on a political level is it can feed that polarization about some of those big issues that you were mentioning, whether it's gun control or um, schools or any number of other um, factors that are going on right now. So um, his, his call is for people to really think about how to become part of communities, how to um, reach out to other people, whether at work or outside of work, and also to make the time to feel more connected, even to family. And what he revealed about his own path is that when he was working so hard as the Surgeon General the first round, he was at work so intensively that he didn't have time to maintain his family relationships or his friendships. And when his time came to an end, he felt so embarrassed that he'd let his friendships go, that he didn't feel like he could reach out to people, and he felt distant from even close people that were really close to him. And he, it sounds like he went through a really difficult time in that moment. So his call is for all of us to think about how to be responsible to ourselves by finding ways to be connected in community, but also I would say one part that I love about self-compassion is that it teaches us how to be connected to ourselves. And often when we're so, so busy, we, we lose connection to ourselves, to our wisest selves, and we're just stuck in this anxious doer self or this I'm not enough self, you know. Yeah, I mean, we do. We, when we're feeling also lonely, I think that gets exacerbated because we're not, as you stated earlier, we're, us as humans, we're social beings. We're meant to be in community, even if you're an introvert, right? There's some level of connection that's important. And I'm a huge fan of connection to self because when we are connected to self, we can show up feeling more present and authentic and be able to share our hearts with each other. And I've been noticing personally in this you know, last year of transitioning out of the pandemic and whatever kind of phase we'll call this, I've just been so much clearer that I don't want superficial relationships. I don't want to connect to people on the surface. I don't want to be fake. I don't want, like, wait, those are not my values. Um, and so having friendships and maintaining friendships and fostering friendships because obviously it's really intense to like just meet somebody and go like that deep that fast Some, sometimes you can with maybe the right people but noticing this sense of fostering meaningful heart-based connection how nourishing that is 
you know, I just mentioned I was on this silent meditation retreat last week and I did it virtually. And I asked a friend if she wanted to do it with me. So we rented a house. We did the retreat together and we were silent. And this friend and I had never gone away with each other. And it was the most like heart opening experience to feel like I could share this intimate experience with somebody and that we could work in such a symbiotic way, like dancing around in silence. And I remember crying because I was like, wow, I've been so hungry for this type of deep connection. And not that all my relationships have to be that, but like from a girlfriend perspective, like that I could be connected with her in that level. A lot of people were isolated, were, you know, talking about shame too. You know, when we're experiencing stuff in our life, I think we've gotten really good at just, as you said, seeing the Instagram highlight reels that when shit's stinky in our lives or difficult, we go inward, we shut down. And that's the opposite of what we should be doing. Yeah. Yeah. And so hard to remember in the moment right but that's why it's great to practice when we're not in the throes of shame and when we're not quite so um and i guess that's hard if we're if you know as the surgeon general speaking to depression that's a long-term sense of of loneliness i think but even then just making efforts to feel like yes i am a part of the group in whatever way i can but i love this notion of the pandemic teaching us that we don't want superficial relationships. I think the pandemic helped us sort of peel away all relationships that were superficial. They just, we didn't see those people for so long, right? And we knew what the core of, of support system was or wasn't. And now we're just hungry to knowing what that really means. Like who's really there for you when the trips are down and how much does that that input take to to create that kind of intimacy um it's really neat this this process you had there at the retreat of gaining intimacy with somebody without even having to talk to one another you know just being in each other's space yeah right and how effortless it felt you know and i think that's sometimes a misconception that people have of like i don't want to make more friends because that takes effort or i don't want to foster these relationships because i have to like put in effort and that feels exhausting right now because I'm stressed because of everything else in my life. I'm curious to brainstorm with you, like what are some ways that people can reach out for connection in an easeful way? Well, you, as you know, for a time I was doing some flamenco dancing and um, I have a friend who went through a divorce post pandemic, which is a common thing that's been going on. And she also has taken up some Latin ballroom dancing and she was encouraging me to go out recently and she, it just it lightens the soul because you're completely engrossed in moving your body and being with the music and you're working with other people whether to learn something or learning together so some kind of activity where one is learning a new skill i think can be a really wonderful way to bond with people and and to sort of get out of the stories that might create loneliness as well um and then I was also listening to Tupten Jingpa, I think is his name, this morning, just a little bit of a talk that he gave for the AWARE Network. He is the um, primary translator for the Dalai Lama, 
and he was talking about living with purpose and he was talking about how a lot of the tibetan um, buddhist scripts of some sort begin with this uh, a human life should have purpose and then he talked about the notion of service and how bringing a, a real conscious dedication to doing things that help other people can not only help those other people but also help us and create that community that sense of belonging and in doing so um usually some friendships grow too mm, i love that okay so like dance class getting out there taking maybe an art class some sort of expression acts of service being connected to our personal mission statements i just had a client session the other day where she was wanting to feel really confident and empowered where she was in life and we were talking about her mission and she just noticed this like oh yeah this is my drive this is why i'm doing what i'm doing and it just totally shifted her energy and talk about connection to self like believing in self again which which we need other ways that i have been loving go on from that if i can yeah super important to tap into our core values to really have those top of mind on a regular basis maybe even kind of tapping into them on a daily basis when we get out of bed in the morning what are my core values and therefore what are my intentions for today really just sets up the framework to find ways of connecting to self and other Mm -hmm. finding that inner alignment another thing i love to do and i've been doing this over the pandemic years is walk and talks. Mm-hmm. I love you and I have had walk and talks. Like <laughs> I love scheduling calls with people, whether it's personal or professional and taking it on a walk. It makes it so much more joyful to move the body, to be out in nature, even if it's raining and just connect to people. And yes, they're not standing next to me, but I feel connected to them. And it also feels just really good to have that accountability to move and and both be moving and find the feel the endorphins flow in between us so that's a really fun way to to build connection i'm curious to to brainstorm within corporate world like how can corporations be building more meaningful connection with their community because some a shift i've seen in the last few months is a tightening around corporate budgets when it comes to mental health, which is a big shift from the last few years. And I know there's a lot of fear around economic uncertainties, but we can't skimp out. Like, didn't the pandemic teach us anything that we can't really skimp out on these programming opportunities and moments for connection, especially if companies are still virtual or or hybrid? Yeah. It's a great point. And um, yeah, I often think about like the core responsibilities a corporation may think it has versus those that it feels are less important and how as soon as there's a little bit of tightening the belt, then what is trimmed off. And as you say, it seems like the pandemic was this real opportunity to learn that employees and even leaderships, mental health is not something to be 
trimmed off. It's the core. You know, the great resignation was all about that. And, and we apparently, I was just looking at the jobs numbers, apparently, we had much better job numbers in April than was expected, like 100,000 more plus. And so maybe at this moment, employers are feeling like they can afford not to invest in the mental health of their employees because there's more people out there possibly but at the same time i'm noticing in a lot some corporations that i'm dealing with that there's still quite a bit of turnover and turnover is extremely expensive from the corporate side you know you it's not that you, you lose somebody that person from the time that they declare that they don't want to work there anymore until they walk out the door is pretty much just using up space they're not going forward with the mission of the country company any longer and then you have to find somebody else pay all of the money to you know put the ads out there and find the new people invest the time in that and then once they come on it can take i believe it's a year and a half before a, a company could get their the money back that they've invested in finding that new person so it's really important for a corporation to make sure that their employees are feeling satisfied in their work. And when they do, as we're learning, then they'll be putting in their best effort and you know, delivering on whatever the mission is, aligning around the mission of the corporation. But if they're feeling out of sorts for whatever reason, then they're a drag on the system. And so it's, it's a preventionary um, perspective to really invest in those employees' mental health which we don't often think about. We're often in a reactive mode. But if we do shift into that prevention, then I believe that companies could, uh, you know, their bottom line would be impacted by having happy employees. Yeah, and it's interesting to watch these trends because I feel like pre-pandemic did a lot of mindfulness work with companies around like stress management. And then during pandemic, it was like, resiliency, resiliency, resiliency. And now it feels like this theme has emerged around psychological safety. I mean, it's always been there. We've always known that psychological safety is so important for the flourishment of a team. And a huge way that we get to build psychological safety and even resiliency and even manage our stress, right, is it's compassion. It's a huge pillar of all of this work, whether it's just compassion for ourselves to be able to take risks and to communicate our needs or to communicate our ideas fully or to feel seen by our peers or managers, but also, you know, compassion with each other, the ability for a team to feel safe, for there to be a sense of you know, we're all rowing this boat together. Mm -hmm. And, you know, um, one of my favorite ways to practice compassion, and I'm sure you can relate, is like practicing relational mindfulness, learning how to even just listen or hold space compassionately, because that can be a challenge when people are so used to multitasking mm -hmm. and having one in ear in a meeting and one ear out and fingers typing away, trying to, you know, get to every email. Mm -hmm. So practicing that sense of like embodied presence is a compassionate act that has such beautiful impacts for our sense of psychological safety. What are some other ways that, that you notice we can bring compassion into this space? 
Well, I just wanted to emphasize some of these ways that you've been talking about. Um, I've been working with a leader in a company, very busy human being, of course, really anxious achiever. I was looking at an article that you posted on LinkedIn recently, and he's definitely an anxious achiever, always got to be doing something else and something else and something else and gets a lot done. But in that space of racing all the time, um, the way that he listens is he'll take what the other person has said repeat it in his own words, never acknowledging what the first person said. And then it, it feels on the other end, like he has co-opted this idea as his own without giving credit. And the other person ends up feeling completely unseen. And then what happens is trust is broken. The person does not feel loyal or respectful of this person who's taking their ideas and seemingly just co-opting them. Now, I don't think that the leader means to do that, but just doesn't have awareness around it. And as you say, with a little bit of training on how to compassionately listen, both he might feel listened to and some of his objectives might be heard more um, deeply and, and aligned around, but also the people that work with him would feel heard and seen and valued by virtue of having that exchange of compassionate listening. Um, I think this word compassion is really confusing to people, so we might want to sort of talk about that. Um, within the mindful self-compassion community, it's the notion that we are able to be with other people's suffering, to hold space for their suffering with love. So there's some research out there um, that has shown that when we feel empathy, for example, in a healthcare environment, if we're feeling empathy for another person, the way that that lights up in our brain is that we feel the same pain as the person that we're tending to or paying attention to. And in the healthcare situation, of course, that's a lot or, you know, mental health or physical health. So we're feeling the exact same pain. But when we add this notion of a little bit of care, a little bit of warmth, a little bit of, yes, everybody suffers. And I, I really am feeling that for you and I'm wishing you well. When we add that little touch there, then different parts of our brain light up and it's actually energizing. Rather than exhausting by feeling all the pain, we are energized to do something different. Practicing compassion at this level, on the corporate level, I think could really help companies energize, actually, and move, move in the direction that they're looking for and certainly feel more aligned. Yeah, so taking this sense of care, that it's not wasteful to take a moment to care for each other, that we actually need that as fuel and energy to keep going. And if you're somebody who's giving compassion, that it's also energizing for the self to be giving compassion, not only as a receiver to receive the compassion. So both and parties are benefiting. Exactly. And then I am not going to remember all of them, but there are five myths about how compassion is a scary thing to embody because um, we have this false notion that we have to be harsh on ourselves, that we're going to be weak, that we're going to be narcissistic, that we're going to be self-indulgent if we are kind to ourselves. And research is showing that people who show self-compassion are actually more, res more resilient. They're able to stick with hard things for a longer period of time. They're stronger as a result. They are um, 
less likely to be self-indulgent because they're aware that, oh, this action that I'm taking right now is good for me, it's good for the other, but I'm not going to just laze around and not do anything because that would not actually be self-compassionate and many other aspects of, of this myth that we have that we have to be harsh with ourselves and therefore with others. I so appreciate you bringing that up because that shows up with my clients that there's this fear of like, if I don't tell myself go faster, go harder, that I'm going to fall behind, that I'm then going to like want to sleep all day and not have the energy to get up and do my job. And it's important to name that, you know, we get more energy. We, we feel more positive benefits when we can and do talk to ourselves with more kindness and care. Absolutely. We just have this myth that we have to make ourselves anxious in order to achieve enough. And I think the truth is, if we feel what our body feels like when we're in an anxious state, we're frequently, uh, you know, this notion of a window of a tolerance that we may have inside of us, our ability to handle the ups and downs of life, that window gets narrower, the more anxious we feel. So then we're irritable, um, we are, uh, our mind is racing, we have tunnel vision, we're sweating, and you know, all these things that are not helpful for creativity or pre productivity. So it's a false notion, it's kind of like eating sugar to you know, race farther. Well, maybe in a long race, we need a little bit of that, but we don't need it constantly. If we just eat sugar for the entire marathon, we're going to bonk and not make it to the finish line. And in a way, pumping ourselves with anxiety is the same notion. Right. We get into these hyper aroused states where we're like actually not functioning well, but we, it's become kind of the new, like normal baseline that we think we're needing to live from. And so I welcome anybody who's listening to kind of get curious about yourself, get curious about your the way your thoughts are, how you're talking to yourself, tonality, notice your energy. Does it feel really irritable on pins and needles? Do you notice that you're constantly trying to put your foot on the gas pedal? Like, do you feel a lot of buzzing energy? You know, if so, these might be some signs and signals that get to kind of pull back, find a little bit more regulation and, and balance in your systems. And compassion is one of the very helpful practices that can, that we can meet our suffering with. And I think we got a name like, you know, that anxiety is suffering, even yeah. if it feels functional. There's this notion, uh, Paul Gilbert, a psychologist from France, I believe, he's brought forward this notion of three regulatory physiological regulatory systems in the human body. We have the striving, which is where we are and when we're in that anxious state. And then we have the sense of defense when we feel like we haven't done something right. And when we and then there's the third system, which is the soothing system. And we tend to just completely ignore that soothing system. So we're ping ponging between striving and then defensive strive defense strive defense I'm going back and forth and utterly su suffering in that whole process so if we bring in that third system which we ignore but which is just a part of being human which is what a mother gives to a child or friends give to one another the soothing calming we can actually function better in the other two systems and so too far or striving too much you know? Oof, i love that you brought that up because the practice of soothing 
can look like so many things like rest, like giving yourself permission to take a mental health day. It can look like offering your body certain foods or type of movements. It doesn't have to be the HIIT workouts every day or running the marathons, right? Like what feels soothing and even just asking ourselves like, how, oh, what ways can I soothe myself in this moment? I love that prompt. Janine, where can people learn more about you and stay connected? I'm on LinkedIn, Janine Johnston. Um, I'm also going to have a we website done by uh, early June. It's the words aware, resilient, sort of blended together. So A-W-A-R-E, and then we're beginning zillient, S-I-L-I-E-N-T dot L-I-V, aware, resilient, dot live. Um, and um, I can also be reached. Well, I think that LinkedIn is the best place to find me, really. Let's just keep it simple. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Thank you for sharing your insights and work with us. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Wade. It's been so wonderful to be here with you today. If you yourself or somebody you know or love is feeling lonely these days, make sure to reach out to them, text, calls, intentional face-to-face -face gatherings. Let's show each other that we care, that they're seen, that they matter in our life. And if you yourself are exploring, huh, do I feel lonely? I welcome you to slow down and notice how you are spending your time. I think sometimes there can be this preconceived notion that loneliness can only arise when you feel bored or if you have nothing quote unquote scheduled, that can be when loneliness arises. But in reality, we can be in a group of people and feel lonely. I know I've been there. And so checking in and just notice how loneliness might be showing up for you these days. And can you offer yourself some compassion? Maybe practice the self-compassion break that Janine shared at the beginning of this podcast. Or if you're looking for more support, reach out to a therapist, a counselor, maybe a coach if it feels appropriate. And you can even feel free to message me on Instagram, say hello, know that you are valued and cared for. Thanks for being here as always. And until next time, stay centered.